0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back into the Charlie Reimer Balls in the Air podcast. I am not Charlie Reimer. I am his producer, David Williams. You all might have remembered me from a couple earlier episodes this year. Charlie had a little bit of surgery and is still recovering, so I'm filling in just to do a brief intro before we throw it over to probably the most interesting interview we've ever had on this entire podcast, if I'm being honest. Uh, Reed Dickens from L.A. Golf. We actually recorded it a couple weeks ago during the DJ World Junior. Fascinating interview, fascinating conversation. Charlie did a great job. So I'm just filling in for Charlie here briefly while he recovers. We hope all is well, and we hope to see you soon, Charlie. Before we get to the Reed Diggins interview, everybody, I want to tell you about the Golf is Great competition. You know, we all have our reasons why golf is great. It may be that shot that you hit from your round that you play back time and time again. It may be the memories made with family or friends. It may even be that extra wad of cash you won off your buddies on that weekend in May. Whatever your reasons, we can all agree golf is great. If you have a story on why golf is great, you might just win a golf trip to Myrtle Beach. To learn more, visit www.golfisgreat.com. That's www.golfisgreat.com. Now, Reed Dickens.
1: Uh, I love talking to very interesting people, and and we've got one, and uh, Reed Dickens, and Reed, you're going to have to hang tight for a second because it's going to take me a a minute or two to get through this (laughs) bio that you've got here. Uh, Reed is currently the CEO of LA Golf Partners, uh, LA Golf Partners is is really on the cutting edge, uh, and and sports and technology in that intersection uh, really shining right now in golf, innovating with an American made product, and we'll get into that down that down the road as well. But uh, he has quite a few uh, PGA Tour players involved and in what they're doing there, including Dustin Johnson, and uh, we're, we're going to get. I mean, all of that's really interesting. But I want to go back and and have a look at this bio. Um, and and, and uh, Reed grew up right down the street from from the Robertsons, Willie Robertson, you know, down in Louisiana. Right. Now, huge fans, uh, Louisiana Tech, uh, Louisiana Tech graduate. Uh, this really piques my interest because I'm, I'm a fan of uh, politics. I follow it pretty closely, and and I, I don't know how all of this works into your bio, but and we're, we're going to get to that, but. Um uh, Reed worked as a, a White House assistant press secretary under who I think is the best in the business, um, Ari Flasher, uh, and, and that was in the uh, George W. Bush administration. Uh, founded a crisis manage, management and public affairs firm uh, a little bit after that. And then um, the other thing, I, mean, I, I just don't, you, we're going to have to connect a lot of the dots. Marucci Sports, who really changed Baseball with 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 developing baseball bats. I, my kid used uh, some of the I believe it was carbon fiber and titanium and space metal and all of this sort of stuff. All I know is when my kid started using a Marucci bat, he started hitting home runs, and and Marucci Sports now is the number one bat manufacturer in in, in MLB. So. Uh, without any further ado, Reed, Reed Dickens, man, what a career you've had to this point and you're not old yet. you it looks to me like you're just getting going.
2: I feel I'm the oldest 44 year old who'll meet. I feel old. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, my, my pleasure. I, I my interest is, is piqued with, uh, with, with working as a white house assistant press secretary yeah. The politics, it just something I'm, I'm a political junkie and, and I've been fortunate to have some friendships with some politicians over the years and occasionally get to see behind the curtains and, and, uh. But that that industry it's it's tough and mean now and yeah. it's got teeth. But t- tell me about your experience working in the White House.
2: Yeah, I had a little bit of a Forrest Gump experience. I uh, went to visit a friend at the Air Force Academy when I was about sixteen years old, and saw President Clinton uh, land in a heli- uh, helicopter uh, in a parking lot. And I told my friend I want I want to do that one day. And I had never met anyone who worked in politics, didn't know anything about politics, and. Um, I mean, if I I don't know if you believe in manifestation, but about seven years later, I landed in the same parking lot on the same helicopter with the next president. And so I I drove over to um, Texas after college and uh, um, talked my way in, literally talked my way in, past the security yard, volunteered. Ended up, long story short, becoming an assistant to Ari Fleischer, then got promoted to be uh, the White House Assistant Press Secretary. And my uh, kind of fun trivia factoid, or a couple trivia factoids in terms of the spirit of Forrest Gump is I was the last person in the Oval Office on the night of September 11th with George W. Not because I was important, just because I was there schlepping the media out of there after he addressed the nation, and but just kind of a surreal moment to find yourself in it as a 24-year-old redneck. And then uh, and then I did my first official White House briefing on the field at Yankee Stadium for the reporters behind home plate the night he threw out the iconic first pitch. Mm-hmm. And so I always recall those two moments as just a snapshot of drive to Texas, volunteer as an intern, and a you know a year and a half later, I'm uh, given a White House briefing on the field at Yankee Stadium. So it was just a surreal uh, four or five years, did almost a million miles on Air Force One. Wow. Just incredibly grateful for that time getting to be have, I had a front row seat, uh, not just uh, for the president of the United States during two wars and a historic moment in history, but also the CEO of the country. Right, I, I got to sit in a lot of a lot of his meetings and got a lot of watch the decision making processes, and uh, it was a really surreal experience.
1: What What are some of the lessons you learned from observing? Uh, President uh, George W. Bush that you might apply in, in your work today as a CEO. Yeah, I,
2: well, I, you know what the, I would say by far the number one thing I took from George W. Bush is his uh, I call it ruthless prioritization. Uh, Tim Ferriss is a life hacker blogger. Uh, the Four Hour he talks about life hacking and prioritizing prioritizing your life. Uh, I always I get off, asked often what was George W. Bush like before 9-11 and after 9-11? And I always say before 9-11, he was really disciplined. Mm -hmm. Uh, After 9-11, he was ruthlessly disciplined. And what I mean by that is he knew how many hours he had in the Oval Office. He knew what his one thing was in each kind of bucket he knew what his priorities are and uh, if you weren't on that list there was a lot of hurt feelings a lot of hurt egos because you could be a cabinet member that was running an entire government you know bureaucracy or organization and if you, you weren't on his priority list it was hard to get time with him uh, so mm-hmm. I, I really do uh, even to this day there's a famous story when he ran the Rangers Texas Rangers there's a story about how the, he called the management team in when he first started running the team and said uh, it was the president and said what are the three ways we can make the most money for the shareholders and and they told him, and he said, "Okay, never talk to me about anything but those three things." And so that really was my biggest takeaway from being around him was the prioritization. Mm.
1: Those days after nine um, eleven, it really, in, in sitting here looking back, it it, it seems like that, that's the last time we were really together as a country. You know, and and what what, what was it like being in the White House, being where you were? Um, in, in, in those days?
2: Yeah, I, you know, nothing unifies, nothing unifies like fear and uncertainty, right? Um, when nine eleven happened, there were, uh, there was a lot of buzz in the intelligence community that it was going to be the first of a five-wave attack. Um, so probably for a year, we were bouncing around to secret, secure locations, and I I thought I was going to blow up, uh, uh, you know, I thought I was going to blow up in my sleep, you know, for probably a year after nine eleven. So I think, the unification of the country, uh, just having a common enemy, right, just like World War II, and also having this kind of fear because it was an invisible enemy. And I think that was a unique moment in history that we had an enemy that was invisible, and there was a lot of uncertainty, and George W. called it the fog, you know, the fog of war. Mm -hmm.
1: And from your point of view, I imagine security had to be really tight. You're around people with M16s. You probably couldn't tell your folks where you were. That had to be a... Uh, yeah, for the first a, a strange for the, time. Yeah,
2: for the first few days after 9/11, especially, we ended up at Camp David, and he had kind of an informal war cabinet meeting with every Secretary of Defense and CIA director from the last several administrations. And the security was wild, right? I mean, we went, you know, uh, on September. People ask me about September 11th often, and that was a blur. But September 12th, I remember like it was yesterday because I walked into the White House with a tank going down the street and two guys with machine guns escorting me down the street. And, uh, you know, I was 25 years old and it was, it was wild, but the world changed forever. And if you think about it, um, that was the new normal. That was when people started using that phrase. Uh, and it really did change everything.
1: So from my point of view, Ari Flasher had what I imagine is one of the toughest jobs on the planet being the white house press secretary. And, and also from my point of view, um he's among the best if not the best that's ever occupied that position um doing it with knowledge with authority uh very fair in in the way he handled a lot of situations in front of him tell me about your relationship with him and some of the things that you learned from him
2: yeah so first of all I emphatically uh agree that Ari Fleischer, I always say Mike McCurry for Bill Clinton and Ari Fleischer are the two best press secretaries to ever stand behind the podium. And there's a lot of reasons for that um, beyond just being talented guys. Um, First of all, before social media, the White House briefings really mattered. Uh, Now they're strictly theater. Um, You know, news, uh, Twitter has replaced the Associated Press. Social media has replaced, you know, the White House press corps was put in the White House to have proximity to the president and to be the first to get the news. A story I tell often is the head of the Associated Press came up to me and just went crazy on me one day and punched my desk and kicked the wall and said, because I had sent out an email, an electronic statement from the president, an email in 2001, and he said, you don't do that. You put that piece of paper on the wall. That's the way it's always going to work. The Associated Press gets the news first around here. So the proximity to the president was why the White House Press Corps existed, and so the briefings mattered. Ari Fleischer was good because he he always said... He was never afraid to say, I don't know. He would stand there for 30 minutes with the lights beating down on him and say, I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, I refer you to the Pentagon. I'm not sure. I can't speak for the president on that. He, he And he also, he had what he called the one sentence rule. He had his best one sentence. There was no topic you could ask him. And I still live by this. I don't get on any call or get walk in any meeting. I actually don't go into my day without knowing what my best sentences on any topic and so Ari wasn't afraid to say I don't know he always had his best one sentence and he also would repeat that sentence a hundred times you weren't going to get him to elaborate right if he because he knew you were only going to use one sentence in the New York Times or on on the on the news right and so Ari was insanely disciplined and I I think like I said considering the circumstances of 9-11 and then Mike McCurry had uh, Monica Lewinsky uh, those were Wild days. I said in 350 briefings, and mm-hmm. and I'm telling you, the, the press corps—they're like piranhas.
1: And Ari was unflappable. Mm. That, and the, to me, the hardest part of that job is you've got to be truthful. There's certain things that you know and you just can't share, and and you got the press out there that's trying to get those things out of you. I mean, that's an ultimate cat it's tough. and mouse game. It's
2: tough because um, you know, there's the, the the old adage in DC that there's things you want to know and there's things you need to know. And obviously, when you elect a president, you're in, you're trusting that uh, leadership to decide for you what you need to know versus what you want to know. Mm. In the day of Twitter, um, the, the public has, you know, the emotional mob has decided that the public needs to know everything, right? That every everybody needs to know everything. But the White House's job is to decide what you need to know. Uh, one of my favorite D.C. expressions is that everybody who knows doesn't talk and everybody who talks doesn't know. Uh, <laughs> and so it's a tough balance. Mm.
1: So, so the next journey and your career path uh, is in crisis management and a public affairs firm. I, I get that, right? Yeah. I, I understand. That's a natural Pretty progression, natural. Yeah, yeah. right? And I was going to ask you some of the lessons that you learned. You, you covered that wonderfully. The one I don't get is the jump into fi- and founding Marucci Sports, uh, which, which the, the heritage there is a baseball bat company. So how, how do you go from... Working in the White House, crisis management, and all of a sudden, you're making the coolest baseball bats on the planet.
2: Yeah, so it's, uh, I always say it's a little Malcolm Gladwellian, right? Part of it's just where you are in in that moment in your life, geographically, and uh, my brother was the personal assistant to the governor of Louisiana. Um, I was running a PR firm, but we had a a branding division of my firm, and so we we built story-based brands, and so I had built and launched a, a few dozen brands nationally. And um, my co-founder of Muruchi, Kurt Ainsworth, he had started a little a bat business. He had bought some uh, wood from the Amish folks in Pennsylvania, and he had wood that was harder than Louisville Sluggers. He had given it to a bunch of his former teammates in the big leagues. They were swinging it, even though they didn't really, you know, he had a little a little uh, bat business, but they didn't have a company set up. They hadn't raised capital Um, and so he went in to ask the governor for advice. My little brother called me and said, you need to meet this guy. I flew to Baton Rouge. And after six hours on the whiteboard, we decided to launch Marucci sports. Um, honestly talking about stars aligning. I mean, I always say you have to have the right people say you have to have the right product and the right people. And that's true, but you really have to have the right product, the right people, the right capital structure, the right business model, the right story, the right market dynamic. There's a lot of stars that have to align. And so Kurt and I got on the whiteboard and what we realized was he had the relationships with the players. He had the hardest wood and all and, and owned all of it, right? Uh, Maple wood's about six or seven percent harder than ash, what Louisville Slugger used, and he bought up all of it. and And so he had the supply and he had the players, and I knew how to raise money and build a brand, and we partnered together. and Honestly. I wouldn't Marucci wouldn't be here without Kurt Ainsworth, and it wouldn't be here without me, right? I mean, we we always say if you if you did it, there's a lot of people I've met probably 20 people who say they know people who are co-founders of ours, which I know happens with a lot of successful brands. Yeah, but but you know, if you if you did a DNA test, it would be uh, Kurt and I really uh, had complementary skills, and Kurt's still the CEO. I always say he's like the Kevin Plank of baseball, but we had the hardest wood, and honestly, I had a kind of ruthless guerrilla marketing tactic. I was a storyteller by trade, coming from politics, right? And kind of the Karl Rove theory that you take you take your opponents vulnerability and you stick your finger in it. Not rumors, not personal, the product or the policy. And Louisville Sluggers wood was softer than ours, right? Just like uh, my new campaign with our putters that we have a bigger sweet spot than Scottie Cameron. And I always take that one message and stick my finger in that one vulnerability, right? And just repeat it a million times. And so we ran a campaign for 2 years, we hired a model and made 300 videos, we got 40 players to invest and ran a campaign saying how hard is your wood, right? And and you know, we we had a lot of fun we had a lot of fun with it, but Uh, We went from players saying, I can hit with a broomstick, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of wood you use, to all of a sudden, within three years, we had 85%, 85%. we took 85%, Louisville Slugger had 80% of the big leagues, give or take, and we took about 85% of their market share in three years and almost all the All-Stars, and that happened in 36 months. So 129 129 years Louisville Slugger had been the behemoth in baseball and really had an effective monopoly. They paid Major League Baseball to be the only bat that could be sold or given out to players. I mean, they had a moat around Major League Baseball, and we really obliterated them because we had a better product and we told our story really well, and we got players. We were player-founded, player-owned, player-operated. We were a big league cult.
1: The, the the other products that you that you have away from wooden bats in baseball, um, and, and you you guys are into a, a, other products, right? in, the, in now baseball. makes everything, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that 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 to me is is a is a big challenge. My kid used your bats, and it certainly mm-hmm. wasn't wooden bats. But but when when and, and I think we're headed this way in golf when the the top the most elite uses uses something like like wood that's obviously a little bit slower than all the carbon and everything that you see in some of these bats that the kids are using um that 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 creates some some special problems i think hmm. we're going to see it in golf i think we're going to see some regulation uh, and where not everybody's playing with with the same game. But that, that's a little bit different challenge when you, you, you've you got yeah. a wooden Marucci yeah. bat and you're trying to sell, so it was tough. you know, a, a parent, yeah. a carbon latest in technology bat and it really doesn't have anything to do one well, with one or the other.
2: my investors asked me, and it was a fair question, what does metal bats have to do with wood bats? And to be honest, I have to give the credit to Albert Pujols. Um, he actually said one day, um, and I'm not going to try to imitate his accent, but it was funny, he said, man, why don't you make a, a metal bat balanced like wood bat? And Light bulbs went off, angels started singing, and I realized that we needed a connector point as a big league company. We were a big league brand. And so every metal bat made at that point was inloaded. Like Easton made inloaded bats, right? Mm-hmm. And they're hard to swing. The MOI that was hard to, the, the moment of inertia it was hard to initiate the swing um, for kids. And so also because of Bryce Harper, a lot of kids were swinging metal bats during the week. And wood bat tournaments on the weekend, they were going back and forth, which was messing up their swings. It was was difficult to swing. Two different swing weights, uh, two different uh, balances. And so we made a metal bat. Um, We had an anti-vibration technology that I now brought into my shafts in golf. We had anti-vibration technology that took the sting out of the swing. We balanced it like a wood bat. And because we did that, this is something interesting that most people don't know about Marucci. Because we balanced the metal bats like a wood bat, it wasn't just a good story that connected our big league kind of mystique. It also made the, the big league players feel free to test our bats for us on camera. So big leaguers before that would never swing a metal bat. They wouldn't touch a metal bat. Well, all of a sudden, we balanced it like a wood bat, and they started making videos. So we'd go to spring training and make videos with them hitting home runs in the third deck with our metal bats. We made some really cool videos of big leaguers swinging our metal bats, and they gave us input on design and input on all of a sudden we had a big league design metal bat. And so that's when our brand, we took about a third of the metal bat market our first year.
1: Well, I, I can tell you this. When my kid was 12 years old and he was playing little league baseball, he hit over 50 home runs that year as a 12-year-old yeah. <laughs> with your bat. It wasn't cheap, but yeah. it was worth the investment. I, I spent a lot of time uh, beyond yeah. outfields looking for home run balls, and we, we, we still have a lot of those. You know, we
2: were we were kind of a – I'm joking when I say this, the Bob Parsons of baseball, because nobody had sold a metal bat for more than 150 bucks, And uh, when we came out with the Marucci Black – I was very creative with our names. Uh, we came out with the Marucci Black. Uh, it was 400 bucks. That's what I paid for and, my and, first and one. And what's funny is no, no one had ever paid over 150 Yeah. And there was, we proved that in Travel Ball, if parents think their kids are good, there's no price sensitivity. And so the first year it sold a few units. The second year was the number one selling bat of all time. Mm.
1: Well, I think I've still got a few of them around. <laughs> and, uh, and we appreciate a, it. Uh, Yeah, sitting around in a um, storage bin somewhere. So you've made the jump now to golf. Tell, tell me a little bit about um, LA golf, and, and let's start with with some of the the players that that you have involved. I, I, Dustin Johnson, we're we're here at the Dustin Johnson World Junior this week, and you're you're the title sponsor, and we're very grateful for your support of junior golf. But I, I know you have a special relationship with DJ. Let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, it's it, we're so fortunate because because one of the things I learned in uh, my venture
2: in baseball adventure in baseball. Is that uh, the player partners were so vital to our not just our brand but our product development. But one thing I learned is that at Marucci we had 44 player partners and about four of them were helpful. <laughs> and so I, I realized understand. I realized going into uh, LA Golf. Uh, That when we I bought LA Golf on GoDaddy for like ten bucks and there's a whole separate story on how many I always joke that I owe everything to Bob Parsons and that's kind of a separate funny story. But I bought uh, LA Golf Partners and I realized I wanted to partner with players. Um, Bryson actually reached out proactively and said, "Hey, I I heard you partner with players. I want to design my own shaft." And I said, "Let's let's go." And so Bryson, we partnered up with him. The first call with the engineers was about three hours, and I knew this was going to be a special relationship. Uh, But but honestly, he came up with a design structure that demonstrably changed shafts. Every other shaft in the industry is machine made in China. Uh, ours are built from the midsection out in Anaheim, California. Um, it doesn't matter if you're an 18 handicap or a tour pro. Uh, it, the, the, the delivery of the club face is demonstrably more consistent. Um, and, the, I, I obviously has been adding about 10 to 12 yards of carry to most people. Uh, Dustin, I'd known for a while, uh, through David Winkle, his, his agent and manager. And, uh, we had been, Dustin and I had been talking for several years, but in, um, we were on a trip overseas, um, and uh, and he said, "Listen, I want to try. I want to try the product." Um, and so we, we iterated back and forth on the driver shaft, and then he loved the putter shaft. He went from 130th or 125th in strokes game putting to like 25th in one year just from putting our putter shaft in play. Because um, with all these shafts, and I can't believe how many of these kids, I think they're poorly advised, are using steel shafts in their putters. It blows my mind. Because if you watch a slow motion camera, the putter head wiggles on impact, especially when you miss the sweet spot, which is... 8 out of 10 times. And so the putter head wiggles, and it changes your putt line. It makes you lose 12 to 18 inches of roll. And, you know, kids think they misread the putt, or their caddy misread the putt, or their dad misread the putt, and they really miss the sweet spot, and their head wiggles. So our putter shaft is really a – I think we had 12 major champions put it in play in the first year. Um, So, uh, yeah, same same playbook as Marucci. Partner with players, innovate a tool of the trade that the players – Use and trust, and then build a scarcity cool brand, and and then also sell direct to consumers. With a lot, which we were the first shaft ever sold direct to consumer, and now obviously we just launched the LA golf putter, um, which is really the most technologically advanced putter to ever come to the market. It'll take people a little bit to adjust to the larger looking head. Uh, the guy who designed Jack Nicklaus's 1986 putter designed this putter. It's an all carbon head with a descending loft technology face a uh, sweet spot that's 50% larger than Scotty Camerons and our in our anti-vibration shaft so it's a it's a very high tech and very expensive well, thanks to Bob Parsons uh, <laughs> a very expensive putter
1: <laughs> he certainly showed Bob Parsons yeah. did that there's, there's no price super sensitive. premium yeah. Market out. There's, There's
2: 27 millionaires in the country, and 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 27 million millionaires, and they don't care about price. Yeah.
1: So Clay Long is your designer. Yeah. yeah that that zero twist putter yeah, that yeah. Mister Nicholas won yeah. in 86. By the way, I was 18 years old, and I was there. That's awesome. For that was the greatest day That's in golf awesome. history from my standpoint. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw every shot he hit from the second shot into 11. Wow. And until the, the little tap wow. in at 18, I can That's tell cool. you where I was standing That's for cool. every shot. That he hit, but there, there's a funny story about uh Mr. Nicholas when Clay first gave him that putter. He was a designer at, at McGregor, yep. and, and Nicholas actually had a whiff with that putter. and He's like, I'll never use this thing. And, then he, and then he wins a, You wins know, a most people don't winner. know it's funny you
2: say that. Most people don't know he missed several of the cuts going into the Masters. He wasn't playing he well, he wasn't playing at well at all, and he almost took that putter out of the bag. Yeah. So, a lot of people, um, say that a lot of people say that you know that putter sold because uh it won the Masters, but they actually, um, the total addressable market for putters that year, I don't know what it was, but they they projected they'd sell five to ten thousand of those putters, to mm-hmm. five to ten thousand units. They sold a hundred thousand units before he won the Masters. Then he won the Masters. They ended up selling five hundred thousand units of that putter. Yeah. Um, so and that's anyway. only because
1: they could make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So so anyway, bottom line is we our new LA golf putter is loaded with technology. But I always say we solved three problems people didn't know they have. Uh, the, the descending loft face makes the ball roll immediately as opposed to skipping or skidding. Um, the anti-vibration shaft takes away the wiggle out of the head, and then the larger sweet spot solves the biggest problem in putting, which is other than mental handicaps,
1: is uh, is is not missing the sweet spot. The the thing about the putter shafts is, I, I was at one point thinking that there's really not much innovation that's going to happen in in putter. Scotty Cameron, who I love, the things that he makes are beautiful. Those designs typically, occasionally he'll come out with original. Their their designs have been around for 20, 30, 40 years or longer, and he's just using new materials and making things different. But the last place in the world I would have thought that you could have got any help on the technology side is in the putter shaft. But if you watch a PGA Tour every week, as you say, there's hardly anyone is using The old school yeah. steel putter shaft. I, I can't believe, honestly, uh, if, if you
2: look at the data now, if you look at the science, um, if you look at Tiger, there's probably, there you could run a highlight reel for two hours of Tiger acting like he got shot or devastated with the ball sitting on the edge of the cup, and he's using a steel shaft. And I can tell you emphatically, demonstrably, and, and I'm not critiquing Tiger, I'm saying that. He spent fourteen. He won all those majors using a shaft that every single time you put the ball, the head deflects fractionally, and so you think you misread the putt or that the ball left, you know, was left two inches short. And most of the time, that's a shaft issue or a sweet spot issue. Um, and so, listen, I always like to say this: Scotty Cameron's the king, right? He's an artist. Um, he he's the you know he has I think eighty percent of the premium putter market, right? So I, I had a Scotty Cameron until I created my own putter, um, and so. But I will say, um, our ad campaign that's coming out soon, um, so don't tell anybody, uh, is is basically saying that material sciences have evolved exponentially in the last 10 years, and Scotty Cameron didn't. He did just didn't evolve. He's using a dense piece of steel with a flat face. And, a, and honestly, I have a friend who bought a Scotty Cameron cutter, putter recently for $8,000, and mm-hmm. it was just a special paint job, and it had a $4 shaft in it, a piece of steel with a flat face. So people are buying nostalgia, and they're buying really Beautiful art.
1: Yeah, right? I've got but, I've got a few of his handmaids. They're beautiful. But,
2: but the but the sweet spot on a putter is not regulated like the driver of the iron. The materials aren't regulated. You don't have to use steel. So so my point is I think Bob Parsons showed there's no price sensitivity in golf. Um, and I think Scotty Cameron's failure to evolve with materials gave us a huge opportunity. So we're really excited, as you can tell. I'm a putter salesman now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to me, the whole idea in golf is efficiently delivering energy through the shaft, and the putter head to the golf ball. And you, you keep talking about deflection. Yeah. When deflection is happening, that's where energy is bleeding off, and it's not getting delivered to the golf ball. Yeah. The, the materials are helping with that. And and I assume that the big secret in the putter shaft, or it wouldn't be a secret, is, is it, it's got to be more than just really cutting back on the torque. There's got to be some other Correct. things that are involved Correct. in so that. So we
2: have a proprietary anti-vibration material um, that's, Woven into our uh, graphite, our carbon, uh, our graphite. Sorry, and um, it absorbs negative feedback. And so, you can't make a sh- putter shaft as stiff as ours. Um, if you, well, let me say it like this: If you made a, p- a putter shaft, Fujikura did. Fujikura made a putter shaft as stiff as ours, but it feels like a rock, right? So it's not just about getting rid of all the torque. Uh, we have a we have a, a pr- proprietary material that absorbs that negative feedback, so that you don't. Uh, you don't feel that negative feedback. Hmm.
1: I've been uh, in in a um, uh, golf shaft factory, the the old G. Loomis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And and I played their shaft back in the day, last last century. And it was really cool. I'm a fly fisherman. and, And I was looking for two things. I was looking for a shaft that didn't hurt my wrist, and then I was looking for a company that would give me some really cool fly rods. And uh, so, right, yeah. so and they would take us on some trips every year. Uh, myself, David Duvall, Jim Furyk, we would play that shaft. And really the reason we played is so we'd get free fly rods right. and they'd take us fishing every year. But they took us through the, through the plant up in uh, Washington State. And it was really a pretty messy process at the time yeah. of how you would make, I mean, they're making fly rods and golf shafts right, in the right. same factory yeah. and, and they were hand sanded by eye. And yeah. so you'd look at the shaft and they're really crooked. That was the early days yeah. of shaft manufacturing. It's obviously changed a well, lot. Obviously since Obviously
2: uh, what's changed since then is the material sciences and also uh, manufacturing efficiency with artificial intelligence and also lean six Sigma operations. So we have a lean six Sigma operation in Anaheim, California. I hired a guy from Oakley who's an incredible uh, production manager Um, and obviously artificial intelligence has changed material sciences greatly. And then also just uh, the consistency, you know, believe it or not, machine-made shafts in China, like most of the major brands, if you cut open 100 of them, they're all differently. Mm -hmm. So those are actually inconsistent. Um, If you cut open our shaft, you'll find a very consistent product. I want to go back to something. You mentioned injuries, uh, your wrist. Mm -hmm. Um, Michelle Wee, who just joined our board, Michelle talks about this often. Um, There were two things that conventional wisdom – had said were impossible with shafts. The status quo um, has always said, if you go stiffer, it's going to get heavier, right? So if you get stiffer, it gets heavier. And then number two, if you add distance, you add dispersion. Um, and real, really proud with our handmade product that we've kind of defied those two conventional pieces of wisdom because we've made a, a shaft built from the midsection much stiffer 200% stiffer than the midsection that adds stiffness but is lighter so we went stiffer but lighter and Michelle always talks about how important that is for especially these young players we're here at we're here at Dustin's you know World Golf Junior Championship and a lot of these young players especially the female players it's a lot of wear and tear they're playing they're hitting golf balls 8 hours a day some of them and it's a lot of wear and tear on their bodies and Michelle always talks about how that until she had our shaft it was just a it was a grind on her wrist and her back, uh, swinging her golf clubs, and uh, that now now that our shafts have honestly saved her body and I and I wanted to go back to that point because your equipment actually can affect your health.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, and and up until now, and I'm getting excited hearing you talk about this because that was a battle that I fought. I, I needed the comfort factor so I could play and practice enough to make a living. Uh, but every time I tried to, in particular with the iron, switch over, I gave up on the performance side. Yeah. I, I just couldn't find a, 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 a graphite or a composite shaft that could fly the way I want it to fly um, and, and, um, take care of my body. I mean, it was, it was like, okay, I would have to play steel to get the flight I want. And then I'm yeah. susceptible to injury. If I play graphite, I'm more comfortable. Yeah. I can practice more, but on windy days that everything was up shooting on me. Right, right. And and it sounds like you guys have sort of solved that puzzle. Yeah. And, and,
2: you know, th- and I really have to give Jeff Meyer, our, our head engineer is a, is a legend. He's worked for almost every company. And he, he said, the, the thing he's grateful for about LA golf and, and about working with me is that he, I gave him a blank sheet of paper and the last four CEOs he worked with wouldn't let him try a carbon head and a putter. They wouldn't let him try this midsection shaft. So Jeff has, has kind of given him free reign and Bryson and he worked together well on some of the design structures. Uh, Dustin you know I would say you know Bryson's one of the best technical players ever right. I mean he now is teaching me about micro misses on the dimple. You know, when you, <laughs> <laughs> you know putting the dimple and, and here's the thing. That doesn't mean he's going to win every tournament win every major but I do learn things from Bryson like every single time we talk people you know people will ask me about working with Bryson and I'm like well say whatever you want to I always say if you look at disruptors I don't care if you're talking about Galileo Elon Musk Henry Ford if you look at disruptors the way you know someone's disruptive is the market eventually moves to them right and if you look at Bryson you can agree agree with the tone disagree with the tone the message the delivery whatever you can have an opinion on distance a bifurcation of pros versus amateurs there's all these topics but I promise you, over 10 years, when these kids are 30, they're going to all be trying to hit it as far as they can. And they'd rather have a wedge in their, as Bryson says, they'd rather have a wedge in their hand from the rough than a 7-iron from the fairway. Mm-hmm. And the market's, this market's moving to this, and I think we're making the equipment to try to meet that need.
1: Yeah, one of the things in, in looking at the board that you have, to have a Bryson DeChambeau and have Dustin Johnson, um, that that's players on opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah I mean, D- Dustin... A lot of people go, oh, he just plays, I just hits. Yeah, that's not true. You don't get to where he is in the world of golf without caring. He's a golf savant. Yeah, but but he's not going to dig into it any way, shape, or form. But I tell you what, Bryson does. I
2: tell you what, Wednesday morning. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Wednesday morning at the Genesis, uh, I was out on the range with Dustin, and he sprayed a couple three woods, just not sprayed (laughs) by his standards, right? And he kind of was letting go of the club and. He looked at Keith Sabarba from Main, He said, "Clip a quarter inch off of that." Mm. And so they brought it back 15 minutes later, and boom, he started crushing down go. the middle. You know, his he really is the ultimate field player, but it doesn't mean he doesn't know. He knows his equipment. Right? He knows
1: his equipment. Yeah, yeah. Bryson basically built everything that he's playing in a garage.
2: Well, to, to Bryson, here's what I'd say: to Bryson, everything starts with mathematics. Yeah, and works backwards from a math equation. And with Dustin, everything t- starts with a visual. Yeah, he's got a he's got a left to right window. He wants the ball to go in, and sometimes he can tell you why it's not in that window, and sometimes he can't. But he can always tell you if his ball flight. So it starts with a visual. Bryson starts with a math problem, but they're opposite ends of the spectrum. But for us, getting that feedback from both ends both is ends. incredibly helpful. Yeah, and that, so. I
1: mean that's congratulations to you because you're you're generally not going to be able to. Put together a board where you're going to have (laughs) like-minded people in general and having both ends, the final product that goes to consumers. Well, it took us two two years. It took us two years, but we
2: now have a DJ signature series and a Bryson signature series available to the public. And that took two years because we had to build completely different design structures uh, for Dustin versus Bryson using our same design philosophy, which was the midsection stiffness. And I'm really excited that we finally – Finally got that to the market this year.
1: Well, one more thing I want to ask yeah. you about before before we get into where folks can find your, your product. Uh, spending some time with DJ today, he, he was talking about the fact that he changes his 60-degree wedge quite a bit. Maybe he only uses one for three tournaments. And and he's got a drawer that Taylor TaylorMade has, and yeah. they, they make those wedges for him. And it used to be you had to get in there and grind and get everything the way you want it. And he goes, because of the technology, he goes, I trust there, everyone that I pull out of there is the right weight, the right shape, the right everything. And in my day, when I was trying to find a driver and a backup driver, what I had to do was I'd get them to make eight or 10 for me, and every one of them was completely different. different yeah. And and what, what I found is, and I, and I think it's still true today, is I never would hit a driver that I was testing out more than twice because I started adjusting it to it. I don't. I don't want a driver that's built for me. I don't yeah. want to start adjusting my swing to make it fly properly. And and what you're doing with the consistency in your manufacturing is you're going to be able to put shafts. Uh, into players' hands where they know they can get a backup or they can try a new head because your manufacturing process is much more consistent than anything else that's out there. That's sort of my take on it. I love
2: that. And first of all, I love talking to real golfers because I I always tell my kids I dress like a golfer and talk like a golfer, but I'm not a real golfer. right? (laughs) And so it's interesting. I love listening to you because you just hit it on the head. One of my favorite moments was at the Pebble Beach US Open 2019, right? Um, um, Bryson's broke his... Mm -hmm. uh, shaft most of the time that happens from micro fissures from travel bags and you know no offense to ship sticks um but uh but it happens when you travel right and he broke his snapped his head off and we had his new driver to him by the next hole and he piped it right down the middle and he said in the in the media tent afterwards he was never thought twice about it he said because i know la golf every shaft's the same and that from when you played you pointed out the reason why you had to back up driver and a gamer and all those terms came from inconsistent shafts mm-hmm. the reason all the terminology i think a lot of terminology you hear from swing coaches you know slow hands let the swing temp, tempo there are tons of terminology that came from decades of shitty shafts mm-hmm. right and so uh inconsistent shafts right and so it really is um i don't want to say the key but but one of the primary keys to these players having comfort level is dustin now dustin bryson wouldn't do like dustin's different right he's unique he he trusts the technology in the in the wedge and he'll use it yeah, he doesn't need to look at the spreadsheet he's looking at the ball bryson fly. would never do that right because yeah. he bryson would know that maybe one of those has is three grams heavier you know it's just a different approach but dustin's also a real athlete and trusts his hands as much as you know michael jordan um and so i i i, I learned so much from both of them
1: it's it's just it's changed so much uh, I, over the years i've had a chance spending a lot of time with mr nicholas and Three Wood's the hardest find hardest club to find. I think even today yeah. it's the hardest club to find. Is it turf interaction is different than a driver? And and Mr. Nicholas had the whole McGregor keyhole insert three yeah. wood. And I asked him one time, how how long did that club stay in the bag? And he was 37 years was his answer. Wow. The same That's club in the wild. bag for wild. 37 years. Wild. Yeah.
2: My, my my it's funny, Dustin said something to me the other day that Jack Nichols said to me when I, I got to walk with him at Johnny Miller's tournament 15 years ago and I uh, asked him the hardest shot in golf, and he said uh, 25 to 65 yards. And I said, what do you do when you go there? And he said, I don't. And uh, that's what <laughs> yeah. Dustin said. I asked Dustin, you know, he said, you know, 45 yards from a bunker is his least favorite shot. And I said, well, what do you have? what happened to the other? He goes, I don't. He goes, don't hit well, it. He said, aren't you good enough just to avoid a bunker?
1: <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> fair point. Uh, actually, no, I'm not good enough. It's, <laughs> it's always fun to talk to these yeah, amazing players. they won major champions. DJ, certainly on his way to the World Golf Hall of Fame. Well, Reed Dickens has been an amazing uh uh, career that you've had, we, we very much appreciate the work that you're doing with, with LA Golf. W- where can folks find your products?
2: Yeah, so we sell direct-to-consumer uh, on lagolf.co, uh, but we also uh, sell through Club Champion and a lot of big box retails. Our shafts are available. Our DJ series and Signature series is available in every Club Champion in America, for example.
1: Uh, and then we have a website where you can order any shaft or our new putter. Okay, so you're into shafts putterheads, just spending a little bit of time with you. I, I've got to think that you've got other things you're working on down the line. Can you give <laughs> yeah. us a little preview on you that? Know,
2: let, let me finish with a famous Ari Fleischer quote from the uh-huh. White House. When we have something to announce, I'll announce it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I expect that we're going to hear some announcements coming real soon. Reed Dickens, the CEO of LA Golf, uh, thank you for spending time with us. This was fun. And, and, and thank you very much for uh, sponsoring the the Dustin Johnson World Junior Invitational here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, the golf capital of the world. I know the kids are having a great time out there at today's practice round day. DJ's out there with them, and uh, we appreciate your support of the event and look forward to catching up with you again soon.
2: Thank you so much. This was so much fun.
1: All right, folks. Appreciate you listening to uh, the Charlie Reimer Balls in the Air podcast, and we'll be back with you real soon with another great show.